When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 155. The year 1000. Last time, we discussed Basil's first few years of campaigning now that the civil wars were behind him. He struggled to get to grips with Samuel, the new ruler of Bulgaria, but fared better in Syria where he pushed out a Fatimid force that was besieging Aleppo. Basil returned to the capital in 996 and appointed a new patriarch. The office had sat vacant for the past five years, which was very unusual. He also took the opportunity to issue a vital piece of legislation. This was the decree which I mentioned a couple of episodes ago. The part I told you about was the emperor's demand that anything he'd signed during his great-uncle's tenure should be brought before him again for confirmation. But that was only part of the decree. The bulk of the text was a new addition to the land laws. And by that, I mean the series of rulings handed down by Romanos Le Capinos, Constantine VII, and Nicephorus Phocas. As you probably remember, this was central to our discussion of the landed magnates. After a terrible winter and some bad harvests, Romanus issued a law demanding that the wealthy hand back properties they'd bought during the crisis. What he was hearing was that the rich took advantage of their neighbours' desperation to buy up their farms on the cheap. As we discussed at the time, the laws in practice may have been more political in nature than about justice. Enforcing these legal claims was difficult, whereas the emperors valued having the threat to hold over the magnates if they suspected their loyalty. It's worth saying that the laws identify the wealthy as those holding imperial office, including the clergy. So this was not just directed at the Focads or the Maleinoi. It was to anyone on the payroll who might have acquired land in the last century. Basil reissued this law with some significant alterations. He removed the 40-year time limit for deciding these cases. 
The bad famine under Romanus had taken place at the end of the 920s, and so families had until the 960s or 70s to plead their case. And those who'd suffered a decade or two later were now, in the 990s, seeing the deadline expire. Apparently, the truly wealthy had been able to bribe local officials to keep the cases out of court until they were in the clear. Not only did Basil close this loophole, but he abolished any payments of compensation to the wealthy for improvements they might have made to the land. He also stopped clergy from claiming land on which village chapels had been built, as well as magnates from relocating market fairs to their estates so that they could collect tolls. Basil's frustration with his own officials is evident. They should be enforcing the law, but instead they are abusing it to enrich themselves. If you throw in the part about decisions made during Le Capinos's time, then we get a clear sense of the emperor struggling to marshal his government. Though his concern for justice is commendable, it is obedience he is really after. The Vasilefs added to this law the extraordinary claim that the crown had the right of eviction on all properties going back as far as Augustus. Essentially, a limitless right to confiscate property from anyone. He then gave an example, which may or may not be fictitious, to illustrate his point. A palace official called Philocales used his position to slowly buy out all his neighbours until he was the richest man in his village. But when the emperor found out about this, he removed all his properties, returning him to the simple farm he'd occupied in the first place. There's no mention of him being kicked out of office, so the implication is that you may not be humiliated by the loss of title, but I can still ruin you if you step out of line. As one scholar puts it, this was a declaration of intent and of terror, part of a propaganda effort to persuade the whole of the empire's political elite, from the highest-ranking functionary to the lowest, that it was Basil who was now in charge. Even after ten years in sole command, men were still finding ways to circumvent the emperor's orders. It's more understandable now that we see how little Basil was actually in the palace and how often he would spend winters on campaign. Speaking of which, the Fatimids would not give up their quest to annex the emirate of Aleppo. Once Basil was gone, they attempted to gather up a force strong enough to reinvade. But after several false starts, they descended into civil war in 997. Basil refused to get seriously involved, whereas one can imagine a Phocas or Zimiskis seeing this as an ideal opportunity to go plundering. By 998 the matter was settled, and the Fatimid general Jaish marched into the territory of Aleppo. The new Dukes of Antioch, Damian Dallasinos, fought a hotly contested battle with him outside Apamea. The Romans were getting the better of the fighting, 
until Dalasinos himself was killed. The Muslim forces rallied at this news, and the Byzantines routed. It was a similar scenario that had played out four years earlier under Michael Vorzis. The Romans lost hundreds of men in the pursuit and surrendered control of the field to the Fatimids. Many officers, including Dalasinos's sons, were taken to Cairo as prisoners. Jaish marched on Antioch, as his predecessors had done. He only stayed for a week, but the point had been made. Messengers, once again, raced across the empire to find Basil. The Vasilevs did not come running this time, and fortunately for him, he didn't have to. What stood in the way of the Fatimid Caliphate from absorbing the Levant was the antipathy between Sunni and Shia, or, put another way, between the local Muslims and foreign ones. Despite having a clear path to Aleppo, Jaish was bogged down in suppressing rebellions in Damascus for the next two years. Basil arrived in autumn 999 to again restore the Byzantine version of the status quo. He stopped at Apamea to bury the Roman dead. Then he went plundering through Fatimid positions, installing garrisons where he needed to. Jaish stayed away as Basil sacked a couple of towns on his way to Tripoli. Once again, the Romans assaulted the city walls with no joy. The emperor had called the fleet to support this operation, which did force the leaders of Tripoli to act. They sent out their garrison to attack the besieging army, and they succeeded in inflicting some nasty casualties on Basil's men. The Vasilefs reluctantly turned away, having been reminded that apparently God did not want the Romans inside Tripoli. Basil spent the winter in Cilicia, preparing to march back into Syria in spring 1000. Sounds weird, right? Uh, But by this point, the Fatimids had got the message. It had been a decade of pointless warfare. When Basil was gone, the caliphate would launch an invasion. The emperor would return and smash some heads together. When Basil was gone, the Fatimids would... uh, and so on. The caliph now offered the emperor peace terms, which Basil gratefully accepted. Although it was designed to be a temporary truce, it would be renewed over the next few decades, a rare moment in history where two sides just agree that further fighting would be pointless. Key to this agreement was the shrinking influence of other regional powers. During Baghdad's decade of relevance, just before the Civil War, they had mauled the Emirate of Mosul. With both these powers in retreat, the Byzantines and the Fatimids could accept a Middle East where they were the two dominant forces. Basil was very pleased with this situation. He could finally turn his full attention to Bulgaria. He left behind him the man he trusted to maintain the peace, Nicephorus 
Uranos. With the emperor in the west, Nicephorus would now become the leading man in the east. Before the emperor could return home, though, news reached him of the death of David of Tau. As you know, the Georgian ruler had supported Bardas Phocas in his bid for the throne. Rather than face Basil's wrath, David had agreed to cede his kingdom to the Romans upon his death. Naturally, this wasn't something that the locals were going to concede unless the emperor showed up in person. So with his ambassadors working out the peace with Cairo, Basil set off in the summer of 1000 and marched from Cilicia through the mountains to Tau. All the leaders of the wider Armenian world heard that he was coming and prepared to welcome him as regional overlord, as they would have done for the Abbasid Caliph a century earlier. First to greet him at Melitene was not a Christian ruler, but a Muslim one, Mumahid al-Dola. And now this gets into the collapse of those other regional powers in the Levant, uh, but let's try and keep this simple. Uh, back in the day, northern Syria was controlled by Saif al-Dola. He ran the Emirate of Aleppo, which you're familiar with. His brother controlled northern Iraq, which was called the Emirate of Mosul. The Iraqi emirate was thrown into chaos by the Buyid invasions during the first civil war between Basil and Bardas Skliros. So, in other words, an army from Baghdad came up to the north of Iraq and tried to conquer the area. As you know, Baghdad was too chaotic to maintain control of all this territory. The former emirate of Mosul was divided between several groups, and one of these were the Marwanids, a possibly Kurdish, possibly another Arab tribe. The Marwanids dominated the very north of Iraq, including Martyropolis, which became their capital, but they also held lands in Armenia, including the Arab towns around Lake Van. These included Manzikert, until David of Tau took it from them. This isn't very easy to demonstrate on the map, because they held territories which cut through the Armenian mountains. However, living in constant conflict with their neighbours in both the mountains and the Fertile Crescent, the Marwanids maintained a strong military presence. They had been friendly to the Romans since taking over, and now their leader, Mumahid al-Dola, came to bow before the emperor. Basil not only put him on the payroll, but made him dukes of the east, giving him authority over the troops serving in Tehran and Tau. This was the first Muslim ever, as far as we know, to be put in a position of such authority. It may seem an extraordinary appointment, but we must remember Basil's recent experience, not only with Phocas and Skleros, but also with David of Tau. Christian border barons had pursued their own interests repeatedly, including backing usurpers 
against Constantinople. The Marwanids were never going to get involved in Roman politics. Their position as outsiders made them seem more trustworthy in Basil's eyes. We have no record of how the locals felt about this decision, but then again the Armenians were quite used to dealing with Arab neighbours. Having said that, the Byzantines were no strangers to this situation either. Uh, obviously, safes, ministers and son had all become Roman clients uh, down in Aleppo, and Bada Skliros had arranged a family marriage with Abu Taklib in order to cement their alliance, Abu Taklib, from the Emirate of Mosul. It's also worth saying that David of Tau had acted essentially as Dukes of the East for the past decade. So Mumahid was taking on an existing appointment. As long as he kept the peace along the border, he could expect to collect a nice salary in gold coin. Finally, I should echo my own comments during our mini end of the century tour. The Romans did not conquer the borderlands in order to convert them into Greek speaking pockets of Byzantineness. I mean, that may have been an ideal goal along the line. But right now, they just wanted to end the raiding. So it was far cheaper to pay one man a huge salary than to pay a thousand soldiers a stipend each to watch the frontier. Basil moved on to Tau. There he received the rulers of the various Georgian kingdoms of the Caucasus Mountains, most of whom he put on the payroll. He gave gifts to the local Armenian rulers as well, and proceeded to set up the administration of the territories he was inheriting. This involved the creation of the Theme of Iberia, with headquarters at Theodosiopolis. Local Georgians would remain in charge of most of it, though some Roman officials were appointed too. I will update the map and discuss frontier administration at the end of the century. Not everything went smoothly. The Varangians got into a bloody brawl with local nobles, which ended in the deaths of several prominent Georgians. Then, once Basil had gone home, one of the Georgian leaders attacked the new Roman position. Nicephorus Uranos had to march all the way from Antioch to restore order. Still, Basil had essentially done what no emperor before him had, which was to take the place of the caliph in the political world of Armenia and Caucasia. As he'd done in Syria, he'd marched in to demonstrate the reach of his army and his authority. With a minimum of bloodshed, he'd added another huge chunk of territory to the empire. Finally then, we return to Bulgaria and our lack of sources. Next week, I'm going to go into more detail about campaigning in the Balkans and the success of Samuel's state. But today, we'll focus on the narrative. Now that he could concentrate all his energies on the situation, Basil set about isolating Samuel in his heartlands. Dating all this is difficult, but we're speaking about 
10.01 to 10.05. Basil's first target was to recapture the territory which Zemiskis had conquered 25 years earlier. Preslav, Pliska, and the rest of the territory to the north of the Hemus Mountains. This was accomplished in one campaign season, suggesting that Samuel could only spare token garrisons. The mountains of Macedonia had proven to be a much safer home for the new state, and so the Tsar remained where he was. Next, Basil led his main army along the Danube to the city of Vidin. You can see this on the map. It's on the river directly north from Serdica. The emperor oversaw a successful siege of the city, which took eight months to complete. Vidin was also at the end of the Hemus range as it sweeps north toward the Danube, so in addition to controlling the river, a Roman garrison here would help seal off Preslav and Pliska from attacks by Samuel. The emperor was taking his time to make sure that Byzantine rule in the region was going to last this time. While there, he also made contact with some Magyar tribes, trying to secure that relationship against any alliance with the Bulgarians. It also seems like his men may have begun work on restoring other forts along the river as far west as Sirmium. With the emperor tied down in the north, Samuel attempted to distract him, by launching a raid into Byzantine territory. It was a bold and cunning plan, as he reached Adrianople just when the annual fair had pitched its tents outside the walls. This smash-and-grab did not divert Basil from his task, though. Having secured the north and east, the Vasilevs next moved on Macedonia itself. He seems to have spent some time recapturing lost fortresses, including Veria, spelt with a B on the map, and Edessa, not the one in Syria. You can see both on the fringe of the mountains, not far from Thessalonica. Where he could, Basil didn't besiege these forts. He camped outside and offered their commander a nice posting in Anatolia. We know this worked sometimes, but that over the course of the war there were defections in both directions, including fairly senior commanders on each side. One of the key turns in this period was John Chryselius, the leading man of Dyrrhachium. Despite the fact that his daughter was married to Samuel, he seems to have returned to the imperial fold in exchange for high court titles for himself and his sons. As best we can tell, that represents the extent of campaigning in this period. You may have heard the story that Basil spent decades methodically cutting branches off the Bulgarian tree, and this four-year period fits that narrative. The emperor had blocked Samuel off from anything east of Serdica, recaptured the forts which made Thessalonica vulnerable, and recovered Dyrrhachium. He had essentially restricted the Bulgarians to their mountainous heartlands, but he'd made no attempt to enter the mountains himself. Basil knew 
that his strength lay in the open field. It's also worth saying that this isolation was relative. If Samuel wanted to march to the Black Sea, no one would have stopped him. But the point was that key fortresses were back in Roman hands, so he would have been far more vulnerable to attack if he had travelled that way. That's where we'll pause the narrative today. Despite the sense that Basil was closing in on him, not a huge amount will change over the next decade, as far as we know. We actually have no information about the war between 1005 and 1014. This mystery will be one of the things I address in the next episode as I try to put some meat on the bones of the Bulgarian war. Let's finish today by briefly talking about the year 1000. In historical chronicles and in church records, the Byzantines didn't actually use the chronology that we are used to. Churchmen in the 2nd and 3rd centuries had calculated the date of creation, and so they estimated that Jesus, for example, was born 5,508 years after the first day. I won't attempt to get into that now. So anyway, our year 1000 was there 6,508. Nevertheless, Roman clerics were well aware that a thousand years since the birth of Christ was significant. Apocalyptic predictions swirled around this date and the year 1033, which was a millennium since the crucifixion and resurrection. We actually have eight different sources from this period that mention the potential end of the world. One of these is Leo the Deacon, who records all sorts of portents and astrological phenomena which were being interpreted in various ways. Some of the more articulated predictions imagined the destruction of Islam as part of the end times, so you can imagine that the reign of Nicephorus Phocas set a few minds racing. Historian Paul Magdaleno throws this into the discussion about Basil's strange decision not to marry. Celibacy was prized by monks and nuns as a demonstration that they had remained clean from any sexual sin. Magdaleno ponders whether Basil was trying to secure his own soul in this way and perhaps even that his lack of interest in the succession could have been influenced by thoughts that the world would soon be coming to an end. Our lack of sources on Basil's reign leads to all sorts of fascinating speculation. Next time, we come to one of the most famous stories in Byzantine history, Basil's decades-long struggle with Bulgaria will come to an end in spectacularly gruesome fashion. Or will it? Hey, 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.